Well, faith family, if I could take you back several years to when you were in grade school, I'm confident there was a moment in which you had show and tell. Do you remember what you took? For some of you, you might have taken a stuffed animal, uh, maybe a board game, uh, maybe a pet. I want to kind of show you what I took to show and tell uh, when I was a kid. It was the most important thing to me. It's a soccer ball. When I was a kid, my life revolved around this. Uh, I, would, I would sleep with my soccer ball. That's how much it meant to me. I would snuggle with it at night. I would play all the time throughout the house. I would use the walls of the house as a passing buddy to the much chagrin of my mom. I loved playing. And so at show and tell, I would take the ball and I would show my friends what it was and I would tell them how important it was to me. When we get to Acts 15, we see where the Jerusalem council gives instruction to the churches of what the gospel is. They make clear that the gospel is God's free grace offered in Jesus. But as those who belong to Jesus, as those who have received the grace of Jesus, we are now to show and tell who Jesus is in our lives. And we learn exactly how to do that in Acts chapter 15. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 15. We're walking through the book of Acts together as a faith family, seeing how the gospel that began in Jerusalem is spreading to the ends of the earth. God has sent out his church that began in Jerusalem, and now they're taking the gospel to the nations and their neighbors. The good news of Jesus, this gospel that even today, 2,000 years later, here we are celebrating and loving and treasuring this gospel that the early church was rallying around, that this gospel was changing their lives, that this gospel is the good news that God sent his son Jesus who lived a perfect, sinless life that you and I couldn't live, that he died a death that we deserved on the cross, and that he was buried but did not stay dead. For three days later, after his death, he arises from the grave. He defeats death, offering eternal life to anybody and everybody who turns from their sin and trusts in him by faith. This is the gospel. But this gospel is what is being argued and debated in Acts 15. These religious leaders called Judaizers, they're going into churches and they're telling Christians that salvation is not by faith alone in Jesus. They're proclaiming that, yeah, you put your faith in Jesus, but you must also be circumcised. You must also keep Old Testament law or you're not truly saved. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they confront this false teaching head on at the church at Antioch. It led to a dispute that they take to Jerusalem. They're like, hey, you know what? We got to go and get this resolved. So they make the 300 mile trip south to Jerusalem and they meet with the elders and the apostles to deal with this one issue. Is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? 
We saw last week how the Jerusalem Council unpacked this issue. And if you weren't here last week, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message on Acts 15 to, to hear how the church dealt with this issue. Well, after much arguing and debate, hearing from Simon Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and then James, the Jerusalem Council came to the conclusion, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by keeping Old Testament law. It's not by circumcision. It's not by man's good works. It's not by being religious. And as much as we celebrate and revel whenever someone is baptized in those waters over there, those waters don't save. It's just water. But the water pictures the salvation that that person has already experienced through faith in Jesus that they are buried to sin and raised into a new life in Christ. It pictures that their sins have been washed away, not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done for them. See, once they clarified the gospel, now a part of the council's final decision includes some instruction to the Gentiles in Antioch in particular, but all Gentiles in general, how they are to live in light of grace. So they wrote down this instruction in a letter. The Jerusalem Council wrote this letter and had it delivered to the church at Antioch. And that's where we pick up in Acts 15, beginning with verse 22. And the scripture says this. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote, From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some, without our authorization, went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you, along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision, and ours, not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality." You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So they were sent off, verse 30, and went down to Antioch. And after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened, strengthened them with a long message. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. As news is being sent out regarding the decision of the Jerusalem council, the, the, the council saw this as an opportunity to disciple Gentile believers. So what I want to do this morning is lay before you three takeaways that we as a church can apply from the Jerusalem Council's decision. And the first is this, Westwood, let's preserve the true gospel of grace. Let's preserve 
the true gospel of grace. As we saw last week, the Jerusalem Council, they, they met together to settle the matter of salvation, to protect the church from these false teachers. These Judaizers, or as Paul calls them in Galatians, false brothers, they went out without authorization, verse 24, from the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, and they're upsetting Gentile uh, Christ followers. These Judaizers are adding circumcision. They're adding obedience to Old Testament law to the gospel. And the apostles and the elders, they met together and said, no, our hearts are cleansed of sin. Look at verse nine, by faith. Put your finger on verse 11. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their argument was you can't add to the perfect finished work of Jesus on the cross. We Jews can't even keep Old Testament law. Why in the world should we try and burden Gentiles to try and do the same? Plus, no one can keep the Old Testament law perfectly. In fact, the law was given to show that we can't keep it. It was the law was given to show us our need for a savior. I love how the King James words, Galatians 3.24, where it says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. You see, there is only one who kept the law perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, the lawgiver was also the perfect law keeper on our behalf. And through faith in him, we are made right with God. You see, God gave his perfect law not only to reveal his character and his nature, his essence as holy, perfect, and set apart, but he gives the law as a general direction of what his people are to be like. But the law also shows that we can't keep it. It's impossible. You and I, we cannot be perfect before God on our own. So what God does in the gospel, instead of us trying to be religious and to get to God by our religious works, which are insufficient, God comes to us. He sends Jesus, our mediator, our go-between, the one who lived a perfect sinless life that we couldn't live, the one who kept Old Testament law perfectly on our behalf because he knew that we couldn't. And through his perfect life, we now by faith and trust in him are viewed by God. We are righteous, holy. God views our lives as if we kept the law. Not because of what we've done, because of what Christ has done on our behalf. That's, we're digging deep here, y'all. Stay with me. That Christ did what we couldn't do. He obeyed perfectly. I have a hard time getting through a full day to obey Jesus. And not just by outward obedience, but from the heart. But Jesus, the perfect one, who from his heart always loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and always loved his neighbor as himself, he did what we could not do in the gospel. He kept the law. And here, these Judaizers are saying, it's not just Jesus. You have to trust in Jesus, but all these other Old Testament laws you got to keep. And the Jerusalem council is like, no, we can't even keep it. Why are you putting this burden on the Gentiles? And so their conclusion of the Jerusalem Council was the good news of the gospel is that God's grace is free. It's free. 
You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But it's yours to receive that God graciously gives you because he loves you. This right here, Westwood, is a truth we can't budge on. The world around us loves to add things to salvation. We like to say, I did something. I accomplished something. Well, the Bible lays out for us that we are spiritually bankrupt before God. So we look unto Jesus, who gets all the glory for the great things he has done for us on our behalf. And if we bank our souls upon Jesus, we are rescued and saved. But if we add to the finished work of Jesus, we're actually taking away from the gospel, and we're actually saying, Jesus, what you did on the cross really wasn't sufficient. It really wasn't enough. I had to do a few things to clean up what you were unable to do. And the gospel says, no, 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 no. This is not the gospel. The gospel is not based upon what you have done, but what Christ has done for you. That's what the apostles and the elders came together and said, this is where we stand. So the Jerusalem council sends a letter back to Antioch with Judas and Silas, who would confirm and corroborate Paul and Barnabas' message. And in this message, the council declared, look at verse 28. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you. They're making it clear. The gospel is God's free grace offered to anyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, anybody can get on, in on this. There's no additional requirements or rules that one must adhere to in order to be saved. Westwood, this is where we stand. The gospel is God's free grace that he offers to all. That's the most broken sinner, the person who's made the worst mistakes, the person who feels like, I don't even deserve to be here. Well, perfect, you qualify. You can get in on the grace that's offered to you in Jesus. But don't think that you have to get cleaned up to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and he will clean you up. You give Jesus your heart and he will change you from the inside out. Don't try to clean yourself up on the outside in. No, no, no. Give your heart to Christ and he will transform you. He will change you. And over time, this is sanctification, over time it's a process where you become more and more like Jesus because you're continually coming to him for grace and he begins to change your life. This is the gospel that we hold fast to, the free grace of God that was purchased for us by Christ at the cross. And this is where we stand. The second takeaway that we see here in the text is this, let's protect the consciences of Christian brothers and sisters. Let's protect the consciences of Christian brothers and sisters. Now, this is gonna take some time to unpack, but I want you to stay with me. With the good news of Jesus already made clear, the Jerusalem Council also wants to maintain unity amongst the Jews and the Gentiles within the church. The question is how? How in the world can you unify people who are so drastically different? When you think about Jews and Gentiles, they come from radically different cultures, different backgrounds, different pedigrees, different religious beliefs, different worldviews, different politics, different lifestyles. Let's talk about the Jews for a minute. The majority of Jews were people of the Old Testament. They were people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
They were people of the covenants. They obeyed Mosaic law. They knew the teachings of the prophets. Their religion encompassed their entire life. From the food that they ate, to the clothes that they wore, to the, to the people they spent time with, to, to the work that they did, their entire lives revolved around the word of God. All right. The Gentiles, however, were mostly polytheists. They believed in many gods. They would worship all of these different gods. And this worship, uh, at times, would include grotesque sexual acts at pagan temples. There was a, a heavy party lifestyle with lots of drinking and a lot of immorality. They would reject the Jews. Oftentimes, they hated the Jews and persecuted the Jews. Now, Jews and Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. And now, they're coming into the same church. Can you imagine how complex that would be? I love being your pastor, y'all. That would be really hard to shepherd a congregation of such diverse worldviews and perspectives. You've got Jews who are used to keeping laws and rules, and you've got Gentiles who are used to doing whatever they want. And now you mash them together into one church. So how do you bring the two together? How do you unify two different types of groups? The answer is the gospel. You see, the gospel takes people away from their sin and their self and their preferences and what they want, and they realize Jesus laid his life down for me, so I must be willing to lay down my life for those who belong to Jesus. I'm going to humble myself, and I'm going to love my enemies, the people across the aisle, the people who think differently, vote differently, people who are not like me at all, but they put their faith in Jesus, so we're going to come together. You see, when Jews realize that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, we don't go back to the old yoke of slavery to the law. You've been changed by Jesus. And when Gentiles realize that Christ died to make you for himself a new kind of people, a holy people, a people who love him and serve him and live a life that is drastically different than the rest of the world, and they come together, they realize both of them have been changed by Jesus. Jesus changes the hearts of all men. And then he brings us all together and he calls it the church. People with different backgrounds and perspectives and ideologies and opinions, lots of perspectives and diversity coming from different places, all coming together, but we're bound by the gospel. We affirm that we are broken without Jesus, but we have trusted by faith in the Christ who is Jesus who gave his life for us at the cross, who was put in a tomb and was raised on the third day. And this gospel has changed our hearts. And so now we're together as one. And what a future day that's coming, by the way, in Revelation 7, in which people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation coming together, Jew and Gentile singing and dancing and basking in the glory of King Jesus and all that he's accomplished for us in the gospel. Well, for the Jerusalem Council, they're addressing both Jews and Gentile believers. And they're telling the Jews, hey, salvation is not by religious works and Jesus. It's just Jesus. 
And they're telling the Gentiles, hey, yes, you're saved by grace, but you need to protect the consciences of your Jewish brothers and sisters. You don't have to work for your salvation, but if, if you belong to Jesus, you now need to start thinking about them. You need about thinking about these who are leaving a life that is revolved around the law of God and trying to obey to earn God's favor. You need to understand they're coming from a drastically different place from you than you are. And so the Jerusalem Council wisely addresses both groups and says, listen, hey, Jews, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Hey, Gentiles, grace is not like a credit card you can swipe to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. They're, they're addressing the consciences. They're telling these two groups to come together. Notice what the text says. Look at verse 28. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you. Watch this. Beyond these requirements. Okay. The letter then lists out three requirements written to the Gentiles. Notice what it states. To abstain from, number one, food offered to idols. Number two, meat with blood in it. And then three, strangled meat, which would also have blood in it. Now we got to remember, Jews could only eat food that was kosher. It was food that was prepared according to Old Testament law found in Exodus and Leviticus. But this wasn't just dietary laws that they held. This was the very makeup of their cultural existence. The, the, the Jews for generations had, had so held fast to these dietary laws and restrictions. And Jews, rightfully so, they were appalled at idolatry. They knew that idolatry was forbidden by God. It's the, it's the first and second commandment. And they want to avoid anything that has to do with idols, including even the meat that was offered up to the idols. You see, for Jews who kept Old Testament law, eating the right kind of food was a very big deal. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 10 when Simon Peter is in Joppa and he's up on the rooftop and there is a vision that he has where the sheet is lowered with all of these animals that are forbidden to be eaten according to Old Testament law. And Jesus says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And the text says that Jesus said it three times. And what did Peter say? No. Is it wise to say no to Jesus? I give that as an illustration just to show you that's how ingrained it was. For Simon Peter to tell Jesus no over eating these kinds of foods, like this was shocking. Like this was Life-altering. You can, I hope this, this kind of sinks in, like this is crazy according to the Jews. Like I, I can't believe that you're allowing us to do this. And so now Jews, Gentiles, same church, the Jerusalem council is like, hey, salvation is by grace alone. Hey, you Gentiles, you need to be thinking about your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ who put their faith in Jesus. And you got to realize what they're giving up. This is transforming their life and their thinking. You see, for Gentiles, it was a common practice just to go to a, a temple butcher, butcher shop and, and buy meat that was offered up to pagan idols. It's no big deal. 
And so James is proposing that the Gentiles abstain from food offered up to pagan gods to avoid the temple butcher shops. Why? Because they were a major offense against Jewish brothers and sisters. The Jerusalem council, y'all stay with me. The Jerusalem council is calling for Gentiles to consider their brothers and sisters to not put a stumbling block in their path. You see, just because you are free in Christ does not mean that you can do whatever you want to do. You have to think of the consciences of others and not use your freedom as a stumbling block to someone else. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians. He says, take care that this liberty of yours does not become the stumbling block to the weak. You see, we are not those who bask in our freedom and use grace like a credit card to do whatever we want to do. To claim grace and do the very things that would make our brothers and sisters who are Jewish to stumble is unloving. Let me say it like this. Christian freedom comes down to this. Just because you can does not mean that you should. Just because you can does not mean that you should. You see, mature believers are willing to forego of something that they are free to do to protect the consciences of others. Now, I can give you dozens of examples, but let me just give you for right now, for the sake of time, two. One is alcohol. If you're over 21, according to the laws of the land, Romans 13, you are free to drink alcohol as long as you don't get drunk. That's where Scripture lands the plane for us. But you have brothers and sisters around you who are walking away from addiction, who are struggling and fighting for victory in that area. And so for you to drink alcohol and bask in it like it's no big deal, you've got to be thinking of the consciences of others. Let me give you another example. It's clothing. Lately, I, I see advertisements, I'll talk about guys for a minute, where the clothing is pointing and revealing areas of a man that no one should be looking at. Hey guys, be above reproach. Let your clothing honor Jesus. Can I speak to the girls for a minute? The clothes that you wear is an act of worship. You can honor Jesus when you say, yes, I can wear whatever I want. I'm free in Christ, but I'm willing to forego that so I won't make my brothers in Christ stumble. It means I'm gonna be modest in my clothing. Now, I get it, it's hard to find attractive clothing for women today that is modest. And for those of you who pursue that, thank you so much. Now for the men in this room, exercise dominion over your eyes. I'm not putting all of the weight upon women. If you have the Holy Spirit within you, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is, is self-control, all right? So exercise dominion over your eyes, exercise dominion over your thought life. But at the same time, women, one of the ways that you can serve your brothers and sisters in Christ is by dressing modestly. Again, you are free, but just because you can doesn't mean that you should. And there are countless other examples. But the key is this. Mature believers are thinking not just, okay, I have my rights. I can do what I want to do. No, it's how can I honor Jesus and love my neighbor? 
in this specific situation, in this circumstance, and there's many of them, how can I protect the consciences of my brothers and sisters who don't land on the same convictions that I do? Am I willing to forego my freedom so that I might be a blessing to others? So I might show the love of Christ and be willing to forego what I want for the sake of loving my neighbor. You see, mature believers are glad to forego what they are free to do to protect the consciences of their brothers and sisters in Christ. This is Christian love. You forego your freedom for the good of your neighbor. Now it's about to get interesting. Notice what the text says. The council also called them to avoid sexual immorality. This was not a call to Christian freedom. This was not optional obedience. For those who belong to Jesus, sexual immorality should not be named among us. That we are to be a people who are set apart and different than the rest of the world. This was a call in verse 29, uh, away from sexual sin and gender uh, in general, but also grotesque sexual immorality that was involved in worship at pagan temples. Because of our mixed audience here, I'm not going to walk down that path, but in active worship in pagan temples, it was terrible sexual sin that was taking place as an act of worship to that God. This is the culture that the Gentiles are coming from. Well, for us today, as followers of Jesus, we are to be a people who abstain from sexual immorality. We are a people who abstain from pornography. We are a people who abstain from adultery. We are a people who abstain from homosexuality. We are a people who say no to any and all sex outside of marriage. You see, sex is a good gift from God only to be enjoyed inside the covenant of marriage. This is God's design. And in fact, when you do what the Bible says, it leads to human flourishing. If we obeyed God's command on sex, we would eliminate sexually transmitted diseases overnight. There'd be no more need for abortion. If we did sex God's way between one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage for life, God's design. But when we take sex outside of God's design, it leads to brokenness. It destroys people's lives. It brings separation in our relationship with God. And it hurts the people around us. Maybe you're here today and, and you're living with somebody who is not your husband, not your wife. Today, it's time to, one of you's got to move out. All right? And if the two of you belong to Jesus, you're going to set a date and you're going to get married. You're going to honor Christ. Okay, Hebrews 13, you're going to keep the marriage bed pure. You're going to honor Jesus with your sexuality. If you're finding yourself continually addicted to pornography in which you just have to keep going back for more and more, would today you repent and say, Lord, I'm leaving this behind. In Jesus, I'm asking you for grace. I mean, to wash me, to cleanse me, to make me new because you can give me a new heart. That your blood that was shed on the cross is sufficient to pay for all of my sin. 
And Lord, I'm taking what's in the dark and I'm gonna bring it into the light. I'm gonna repent, I'm gonna turn from this sin and I'm trusting in you, Jesus, to give me grace. And then you surround yourself with godly community. You Men, you invite other men into your life to hold you accountable and to encourage you. Women, you invite other women into your life to encourage you and hold each other accountable. It's a call away from sexual immorality and you're stepping into the light of Christ. If you're, if you're falling into the sin of homosexuality, all that you would turn from that and run to Jesus. You are so loved by God. And Jesus loves to embrace the sexually broken. We see it in John chapter eight. Oh, that you would run to Christ and he will receive you. That his blood shed on the cross is sufficient to pay for and atone for all of your sin. Run to Christ and he will receive you. Turn from that sin and bank your soul upon him and he will give you victory. Victory is yours when you bank your soul upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see the Jerusalem council doing is not only clarifying the gospel by telling you what it is, they're saying this is what it looks like. It's a show and tell. You're seeing what the gospel looks like lived out as Gentiles who are turning away from sexual immorality and we're thinking about the consciences of others. We're thinking, how can I outdo my brother and sister in showing them honor? How can I protect their conscience? This is where the text is driving us. It's driving us to modeling what the gospel looks like. We honor Christ with all of our lives. And what a testimony. And a culture around us that is absolutely in chaos and confusion over sexuality we have an opportunity, church, to model God's good design. We get to model a healthy sexuality of God's good gift of sex between a husband and wife, and for that and that alone. And it's a good thing, it's a holy thing that God has created, and it protects us, and it's for our good, and it gives him glory. What a way to be a winsome witness in a world that has no idea where true north is. Well, as followers of Jesus, we know who true north is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has laid clear in his word what healthy sexuality looks like. And so as we pursue Jesus, as we obey his word, we want to honor him with all of our lives, including our sex lives. This is what we see happening here in Acts 15. The gospel is clear. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. But this is what it looks like. It's one in which you're looking to love and serve your neighbor and you're willing to forego your own desires of sin and self and you pursue the Savior. Third takeaway, church, is let's point to the word together with joy. Let's point to the word together with joy. The church in Antioch gathered together, verse 30, they listened to the verdict of the Jerusalem council as they heard how they are saved by grace and grace alone. They're no longer under law. They're free in Christ. Look at verse 31. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, verse 32, they stay there and teach him the word. They invest in their lives. Eventually, they head back to Jerusalem, but Paul and Barnabas, they stay in Antioch, and they continue, verse 35, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. As the word of God took center stage in the church at Antioch, 
as the word of God was central in life, rhythm, culture of the church, God's gonna use this church to impact the nations. Oh, that we would be a people where the word of God takes center stage. That we forget, you forget my name. My name is irrelevant. Remember Jesus. And the word of God takes center stage. In your small group, you let the word govern relationships. You let the word dictate how you relate with one another, how you honor the Lord in your life. We let the word lead and shepherd us. We are a people of the book. And you see what it leads to? Great joy. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? That's your impact point, it's this. Let's show and tell the grace of Jesus in the gospel. I know you're not in grade school anymore, but people are watching you. They're watching. And they're looking to see what's the most important thing to him? What's the most important thing to her? And may you and I be a people, though it's good to have hobbies like soccer or whatever, we are a people infatuated with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to show and tell a watching world what the grace of Jesus is all about.